Well, welcome to this week's episode of For What It's Worth, A Man of a Thousand Faces, part of our Past the Jam series. I'm your host, Blake Melnick, and this is part two of our interview. In part one, Douglas Cameron and I discussed his motivation for music, his career, his stories, and the bands he played with. In part two, we're going to bring Heather Gemmel, our current artist in residence, into the conversation to do a deep dive with Douglas about the art and craft of songwriting and the business of music. For what it's worth. Hey, you guys. How's it going? Good, Heather. Great to meet you through all of this. What a unique way to meet halfway across the country over a really cool podcast. So thank you very much, Blake, for including me in this. Well, thank you, Heather. It's truly been my pleasure having you on the show, playing all of your music for the past couple of months, and congratulations for making the finalist voting list on CBC's Searchlight Talent Contest for your tune, North Stars Burning. Amazing. Well, now that I've done my part of the interview with Douglas, it's over to you. Doug, it's been so interesting listening to your career, your lifelong uh, career in music. You've gone into several different avenues and all of are of interest to me actually right now especially well your songwriting as I'm a songwriter too but your your work in the sync licensing game I found of particular interest actually I'm just starting to dabble in that world a synchronization license commonly shortened to sync generally refers to a legal agreement between the copyright owner of a piece of music and the party seeking to use that music which permits the synchronization of copyrighted music to any other type of content mainly visual content, although certain types of audio usage require sync licenses as well. The synchronization license can be further subdivided into two parts, each aligned with a specific section of copyright music, sync licensing on the composition side and master use licensing on the sound recording side. So I was going to ask you a few questions about it, and I'd like to ask you some more questions outside of this interview. I, I think I could also benefit from some of that from you because... My experience with that has not been so much me having any of my songs used in that respect, although I've had a couple. When I worked in TV, there was a lot of that going on. But I see now that it's even more important to the industry and to, certainly to a songwriter than, than almost any other avenue. My goal in the music industry is to have a full-time income as a musician, which is what you've done, right? This is your full-time job, and this is what you've done over the years. You've ticked so many different boxes whether it's playing with a band, uh, different instruments with different bands, doing the sync licensing, and then your singer-songwriter stuff, lessons, touring, opening for people, you name it. So that's it's quite an accomplishment. And the list goes on and on of things you've done over the years. Interestingly, before I worked in television, I always had other jobs, and I simply had to. Music supplemented my income. When I worked in the world of television, more or less composing all the time, that was a real job that, and I was able to make a full-time living. I can only imagine that it's a challenge and what I don't know if these days there are as many opportunities to play live as there were when I was younger. You could play in a bar for three nights a week or six nights a week. There were local events and things that you could do. Now I'm at a point in my life where I'm not working as much although I have been teaching quite a bit. And I guess for me, because I did a lot of different things, it helped me because I got to play a lot of different instruments in a lot of different circumstances, but it didn't necessarily always mean that I was achieving the one thing. The other thing I 
found very interesting listening to your stuff was the lap steel. We have that in common, don't we? Well, I suspect that you're a much more adventurous lap steel player than I am. And I was curious because, first of all, you don't see many people at all playing lap steel. At least I don't encounter that many people. And certainly I only know of one or two women who play. I say that in the context of I don't know very many people at all who play lap steel. So I was really impressed. And how did you start playing lap steel? I started playing because I love blues music. And way back around 10 years ago now, I started playing dobro. So I started playing the Uh dobro, which is lap steel, just acoustic lap steel, essentially. And I, I started going to these bluegrass workshops, Sorrento Bluegrass Camp. It's called Nimble Fingers Old Time and Bluegrass Festival and Workshops. And I so many of my friends were going and I'm like, I don't play bluegrass, I play blues. Which instrument should I pick? Because I already played guitar. Which instrument should I pick that I could incorporate into blues music as well? And there enters the dobro. So that's kind of how I got into it. How how did you get into it? Because you play uh, six string lap steel and then I heard you playing, that's bottleneck slide you were playing on the songs you submitted to Blake. Yeah. On the old guitar. Yeah, I played bottleneck slide guitar before I played lap steel. And so I was very familiar with G open tuning and D open tunings. I started playing lap steel because I was doing a TV show called Big and Small. And the producers of the show said there were two characters, Big and Small. This is a kid series. And Big was going to be represented by a ukulele. And Small was going to be represented by the clarinet. I think that was it. It was either that way or the way around. And they presented me with this idea. So I had to write the score using ukulele and clarinet. And I said to them, you're going to need something to connect these two sounds. We need something to fill it in. And I said, I think lap steel would be good. And I thought to myself, there won't be any money to hire somebody. I'll have to figure this out. So I went down to Capsule Music in Toronto and I bought a lap steel and I took it back to my little studio and I went online and figured out C6 tuning. Okay. That's the tricky one for me. (laughs) It worked because I didn't play bluesy like you do. I played a little more like Hawaiian. I played basically whatever I could make work, I would make work. Now, I happen to know somebody who plays really well, a guy named Burke Carroll here in Toronto. Yeah. He also plays pedal steel, but he plays lap steel and he plays dobro. And, and I hung out with Burke a little bit to pick up on a few things. And I've learned a couple more tunings since then. I don't play as often as I would like to, but you were rocking out. I was very impressed by that because I've tried that style and not been all that successful. But it it also reminded me of David Lindley. He was my first influence, I would think, into lap steel aside from dobro. But yeah, that's the sound I was hypnotically attracted to. Yeah. Yeah. And listening more to your stuff, you have a real blues influence both in the way you play and also the way you sing, because you have those inflections in your voice. That lap steel that you're talking about that you got for the television show, is that the lap steel that I see in the the YouTube videos? Yes, it is. I wish I'd bought more lap steels. They seem to have gone up in price. I think I bought that one for 300 bucks, which was pretty good. It's an old national. And what can you tell me about the the banjola? Well, this is interesting, because I listened also to some of your frailing. The Snowdrop piece, which I really enjoyed, and I love the way you play. Frailing is a style of banjo playing that uses a strumming technique that catches the fifth string with the thumb and strikes down with the back of the index or middle fingernail to play melodies. 
it produces a bump dirty sound, sometimes referred to as old time banjo playing. You play so gently. So the banjo, I have a, this good friend of mine who lives in Denver who is a banjo player. His name's Edward, Edward Dick. And he wanted to build a softer sounding instrument that he could play banjo on. And he's a guitar builder, amongst other things. And he found these old instruments from the 1800s that had five-string banjo necks and wooden bodies. He found a whole bunch of them, and he started to build his own version of that, and he ended up calling it banjola. And there are other commercial ones now made called banjolas. He initially made five-string banjolas, like a normal five-string banjo, and played them like a banjo. He subsequently added a lower bass string to the instrument, and that's the one that I ended up with, which I play more guitar-like, although I combine a banjo sort of feel to it. And they're quite lovely. I can send you some links to stuff that he's done, and he's still building them. They have a softer tone, obviously. The steel string ones, like I play, have a pretty ringing kind of tone. I was looking at your videos and some pictures. Is the top fifth string, is it in behind the neck? I don't see the tuning peg on it. Yeah, he makes them with that tuning peg sticking out where the string ends. What there are on, on, on mine is there's a tunnel. So the string goes up and it goes into a tunnel and then it runs up to the peg head. A banjo player would pick up my banjo and feel very awkward because that tuning machine is not there and they get used to playing around it. But a guitar player who would pick up a five-string banjo would feel awkward because that tuning machine is there. I've done a couple of frailing things on it. I, I learned to frail on the banjo, again, because Edward wouldn't show me. I was working in his shop years ago in Peterborough, and he wouldn't show me how to frail on the banjo. <laughs> Is this the same fellow that wouldn't show you how to play Johnny B. Good's intro? No, but it, it was the same kind of things. I really wanted to learn how to do this. And I figured the easiest way to have someone show me, but they wouldn't show me. So unfortunate, you know, and my dad <clears throat> told me he's run into so many guys in the cabinetry trade that like younger guys would ask him how to do things and the older guys would maybe hold back some of those trade secrets and for what why it takes two seconds out of your day to show somebody younger than yourself how to do something <laughs> that kind of bothers me that that person didn't show you how to frail and that guy didn't show you the intro to Johnny B. Good like to what end well they were my contemporaries and so if I was going to horn in on their territory they might have been a little upset with me but I did learn how to frail I'm not that great but I love playing that way. I greatly admire banjo players because banjo is hard. Banjo is weird. The open tunings and figuring out melodies and things like that, that's really something. Do you find with your songwriting, is there a certain instrument that you like to write your songs on with and then later on go back and forth between your different instruments? Or do you primarily write on one and, and then just accompany with the others on your recordings? What's your process? I would say... Predominantly, I have used guitar. For me, there's always some kind of idea, and it's usually a lyrical idea that matches up with some kind of melody. And, and I'll often write songs that, that are genre-based, like I'll write a country song that sounds like a lot of other country songs. And what I'll do is that I'll work with the guitar and chord progressions that I'm very familiar with, but then I'll try to mix them up a bit or make them a little more unique. But for me, it's always melody and lyric. Your song about the ski lift burning. Mm -hmm. I think you were using an open tuning, was it? Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Can you guess which one it is? Is it a D tuning of some kind? Yeah, it was, it was Dad Gad. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. And I like yeah. Dad Gad. But it struck me that you were playing kind of in that ethos, that kind of open tuning, bluesy, folky kind of tuning. Dadgad, or Celtic tuning, is an alternative guitar tuning most associated with Celtic music, though it has found use in rock, folk, metal, and several other genres. Instead of the standard tuning, E2, A2, D3, G3, B3, E4, the six strings are tuned from low to high, D2, A2, D3, G3, A3, and D4. Yeah, it's kind of got a cool mishmash, I find, Dadgad, between the really pretty melodic stuff and then that darker, spookier-sounding, folk-esque kind of sound. So I I like that tuning because it's so versatile. When you play your mandola, what tuning do you stay in most of the time? And then which ones do you dabble with? Predominantly, it's a banjo tuning. It's a C tuning. Uh, C, C, G, C, D. Yeah. With with a high G string. And that's augmented by a lower G, which can also be tuned to an F. Interesting. So, so you get a, a real C tonality, uh, modal kind of tonality, with a lower feel to it as well. I've also used an open G tuning, because I do a bit of slide on banjola. And I play a lot of slide in open G, like Robert Johnson kind of tuning. But I've, I've just been turned on to a whole new banjola tuning. It's a low D tuning. Mm. Uh, and I said to Edward, who made them, I said, it would be lovely to have something like Dadgat to play on this instrument. COVID isolated me, uh, as it, I'm sure did everybody. And I started really working on playing everything because <laughs> there was no one else around. You put out a lot of YouTube music during that time when you're learning your bass, your upright bass. I did a lot of that just so I'd have something to play bass to. <laughs> yeah. And also I started to reflect on some of the music that I liked, songs I've liked over the years and wanted to play, and even songs that I hear now that I want to play. And I haven't had much chance to perform. I don't know about you. I think you guys got hit a little bit harder with COVID out east, especially in the big cities. Which city are you in? in Toronto. You're right yeah. in Toronto. So, yeah, you yeah. guys were shut down for, I think, a lot longer. We actually got playing quite quickly after the main shutdown. We had one restaurant in town that kept music going. They did the plexiglass divider for the musician, and they were able to keep going in a small town. It's good to to find a private venue to play at, so you're playing for tourists as as much as possible. Because You can play your town to death, so to speak, if you play Mm. in a small town too much, right? So Mm -hmm. you got to keep it fresh. And it's also a good challenge to always be trying to play something and perform differently for your local audience when you live in a small town. If I lived in Toronto, I'm sure I could play every night in some sort of bar, coffee shop, or private event, and no one would hear the same thing, you know what I mean? You could play the same set list and have different people at each venue. It's so big, I imagine. Is that kind of how the big city works for performers? There's a swath of musicians that I know who play a lot in little clubs. They often play in different ensembles. Somebody will put together a kind of themed and recruit the same kind of players. A lot of the performing that I do doesn't happen in Toronto. Playing with the show that I do, it's usually in communities outside of the city. But now that I'm playing upright bass, I would love to have a regular gig somewhere in Toronto in a little place playing behind people. That would be a lot of fun. It struck me from what I could 
gather from your recording is that there are other musicians that you're playing with out there. And uh, I think that's really critical, is that you have a community of people that you can play with. Absolutely. Um, I love playing, accompanying people, especially on the dobro. It's hmm. such a fun to embellish off of somebody else's lead vocal, play in between the gaps of the song. And it's fun doing the singer-songwriter thing. It's fun doing the cover thing for for bars and restaurants and I play in a band called Alderbash and I play lap steel so I'm playing the lap steel in this dobro tuning with them mm. and yeah it definitely fills my cup I love jamming and playing with other people it's so much fun I'm, I'm very happy to be surrounded by a lot of players that you can find jams and form a band mm-hmm. so what do you think over the years have you found to be your most challenging aspect of being a musician your goal to full-time income after early years you said you had always had a side job but when you're in film and tv that was your main thing but going from true north records and your your path after your big hit i was listening to your other conversation with like what would you say was your biggest challenge i think for me and i think i'm still in it when i was young i imagined that i would just become a big star because that's what i saw i saw people who were stars Joni mitchell James Taylor, all these big stars, people doing the thing that I aspired to do. When I actually got into the business, I realized that I actually didn't know how to do it. And I also realized that part of me didn't want it so much. And I think for me, the biggest challenge has not just been around making money. I I was told from a very young age that I couldn't do music as a career, that I had to do something else. Well, it was sort of my parents and the culture. I was... I had to do music because they wanted me to. And ultimately, I wanted to do music all the time. But I was also told you can't ever make a living at it. And so part of me was very conflicted. Even when I worked in television, where I did make a living, it was a job. I went every day, sometimes six days a week. I worked from seven in the morning till six at night. It was an assembly line to a large degree. Here's the show, make the music, go for it. You'd think I was on top of the world. I'm making money being a musician. I'm writing music for TV. This is pretty impressive. And a part of me said, I don't know if you want to do this. And I think the hardest thing for me is figuring out who I am both musically, but also in terms of what it is that I want. And the thing that I've come to, and it may not be helpful, because I know making a living is important, and you need to do it. I want even now to make a living, even as I'm kind of retiring. But it's just figuring out who you are and what you want. And the thing that I want is I want to learn. And I feel this even as I get older, it's even stronger. I want to become better. And part of my wanting to play upright bass is I want to become really good at it, good enough that someone will hire me to play a gig. (laughs) That's my standard. Because there's something in learning. And I think that music presents that possibility that you can always learn. You can learn a song. You can learn a new riff. You can increase your technical ability, whatever it is. And so for me, it's been trying to find the balance between learning and producing. And the other thing that's challenging for me is that as I've gotten older, it's become harder to find those creative impulses to write songs. And I find that I'm slowing down 
I don't write as many songs. When I wrote songs for that last record that I did, Riverdale, which is now a number of years ago, I had a purpose, and so I was motivated. And since then, I've written a few songs, but I've lost a bit of that momentum. And that's a bit of a challenge. I think when you're young or younger, you are determined and you're wanting to do it. And as you get older, it's like, well, plus I don't get as many good ideas. (laughs) You're always finding that balance of enjoying your life. And then when is it worth really pushing so hard that you don't enjoy it anymore or just let it come naturally and enjoy the process? I really respect and, and admire what you're saying. I feel like we connect quite a bit, even though we don't know a ton about each other, just listening to you talk about your process and your experience and your craving of learning new things and always getting better. I really connect with that. And I bet a lot of the listeners on this podcast will connect to it too, because I'd be a lover of music to listen to music related podcasts. And you've just got such a wealth of knowledge. What do you think makes for a good song? Like now you feel like you're not stuck, you slowed down. What do you find makes for a good song back when you were in your heyday of writing song after song versus on your last record? I've done a little bit of studying of songwriting. I respect this guy named Pat Patterson a lot, who is a lyric teacher at Berkeley. If you can get an idea, an image that moves you or attracts you in some way, entertains you or makes you laugh or makes you cry or whatever, chances are you can do something with that to create a song and and reach other people. It's almost as if there's enough energy in the idea, it will move through the song and sustain itself in the song and in the telling of the story. When I was younger, those ideas seemed to be prevalent. And whenever I was in a band where someone else wrote songs, it was always very stimulating because it was slightly competitive. It's like, okay, if you're going to write three songs this week, I'm going to write four or Oh, I only wrote one this week. Not all of those songs are great, but surely out of some of them, something is going to come. When I worked in TV, I would be presented with the idea. Here's the idea. We need 50 songs. Here are the ideas. They relate to the episode, and we want them in this style. And so that became a much easier prospect because then you didn't have to think of the idea. So now what gets me is some turn of phrase, some lyrical idea that presents an image that is interesting. For instance, a, a song I've been working on for about the last year, <laughs> I was up north at our place and I had blue jeans on and a nice blue shirt of some kind. And my sister-in-law said, oh, you know, you look really good in blue. And I turned to her and I said, I'm just trying to stay blue. And I mm-hmm. thought, oh, there's an idea. I'm trying to stay blue. And so it became a, and it still is a process of, well, what does that mean? And who is saying it? And to whom are they saying it? And what happened that that they want to stay blue? Because normally when you're blue, you don't want to be blue. You want to not be blue. But I'm trying to stay blue. And that's the kind of thing that gets me. Now, whether or not it's a successful song in the end, I don't know. It'll depend on someone hearing it, someone singing it. My test when I hear a song is, do I remember it? And do I remember it almost immediately? Are you going for a hook when you write a song? Like that one little part that can ring in your head over and over again? Or does it just come naturally? I think it flows from the idea. If the idea and the image present that, then yes. And I've also moved away from trying to be a commercial songwriter. I remember going to a songwriting workshop where they said within however many seconds you need to have the hook. And they would say, never write a waltz. And I think, but I love a waltz. So for me, does the image translate? I feel very gratified when someone comes up to me and tells me what they think that song is about. I'm talking with Blake about the songs. 
And he offers that he thinks it's about this. And I go, wow, obviously that idea that I thought was interesting is interesting to someone else. And if the melody is pleasing or memorable or whatever, hard to know. Because I think it's also something that you don't want to overthink because you are kind of in it. I, I often found that when I did other things, I would write songs. Like if I did manual labor, a house painting, that ideas would come to me. Or I worked in a group home for a number of years with deaf-blind adults. And on the night shift, when I would be doing the cleaning, I would get ideas for songs. <laughs> yeah. That's a great use of time, isn't it? I think, turn off your brain, so to speak, and try to focus on something else while you're doing a somewhat yeah. mundane task. And then that other part of the brain is freed up to swim through things. David Francie, I was in a songwriting workshop with him once. It was leading up to the Calgary Folk Festival. He had some songwriting workshops, and he said he was blessed in his early years working in the construction industry, and he was able to make use of his day job time and write songs. And then when he goes home at the end of the day, transpose them onto paper or some sort of one-track recording device and make use of the time while he was earning a wage and translate that to his music career. I try to remember that when I'm at work, because I have a full-time job too. And if I can work alone, which I love working alone, because then I can sing to myself Mm -hmm. and be working on a melody in my head while still earning a wage. (laughs) So I find it's all a balance of making use of the time that's allowed to you and then going home and putting it to, to use. One of my other questions before we wrap up, I think you've alluded to maybe the best advice that you were ever given, and that might have come from Pat Patterson. Where, uh, was it Pat Patterson that, that gave you that lick of advice? Well, so, Is there anything else that, that someone could take away from the best thing that you've ever been told that sticks with you? I thought about this because this was an idea that was swimming around in my head the other day. The best advice that was ever given to me when I was in the middle of my pop music career, and it was advice I didn't take. I wish I had. It was a record company rep, and it happened to be out west somewhere. I think it was in maybe in Vancouver. I can't remember. And he picked me up at the airport. I was doing a promo tour for my Ben song that was on the radio. And he turned to me and says, do you have a manager? I said, yeah. He said, do you have a good manager? I said, mm, yeah, you know, I'm... He said, get yourself a good manager. And I always remember thinking, oh, okay, get myself a good manager. What I think that translates into, and I wish that I'd immediately gone to someone like Bernie Finkelstein and said, Bernie, be my manager. Because I watched what Bernie would do for his artists and how he would promote them. I think what it means is either get somebody who knows how to promote you to whoever you need to be promoted to, or figure out how to do it yourself. I was never any good at doing it myself, and I never was able to get somebody to do it for me. And so my pop music career was very short. It was spectacular, but it was very short. And I would think that if you were setting out in the business right now, and I watch people do this, I watch them manage their own careers, and they're tireless about promoting themselves, or they connect with somebody who can help them do that. And I think that's very important because the artistic end of it is one thing, and then the business end of it is another thing. And the business end of it was never anything I was any good at, and I'm still not. And I think it profoundly affects what happens to you as an artist. When when you attained that, that goal of yours to get on with True North Records back in the day, how did that come about? Completely by accident. True North Records had been presented with my demos prior to that and had rejected them. 
when Mona with the Children was being, when the video was being made, someone wrote about it in the newspaper. And Bernie Finkelstein read about it in the newspaper and called up and said, I want to put out your single. And he said, but there can't just be a single, there has to be an album. And so all the demos that he rejected two months before became the album that he put out. Interesting. Now, the thing was, he didn't have to pay for it. And we did a lease deal. So he got an album and a single without paying a cent, or True North Records did. They worked tirelessly to make it successful, which was great. I don't in any way hold anything against them. They did a marvelous job of making it really successful. But because they didn't own it, the point in time where they would have then gone gangbusters to do another record or whatever had to be done to promote another single... They didn't because they didn't have an interest in it in that way, partially. And I think also it's quite possible that what I was attempting to do, I was labeled adult contemporary and adult contemporary did not sell records. It got radio play, but it didn't sell records. And selling records in those days was the thing you had to sell. I sold 15,000 LP records and that wasn't enough. I would have had to sell about 50,000. And then it would have been something. So get yourself a good manager. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Back to your sync licensing game. Since you you did so many things with Treehouse, I I was actually watching a little YouTube clip of you. It was recorded on VHS, obviously, and put over to digital because it was super grainy and there's lines through it. And I got to see your setup in the early 90s. But all the songs that you recorded on some of those television shows are still playing you mentioned you worked on goosebumps that's a show that i used to watch as a kid and i just noticed it on i think it's on netflix so every time a song is played on one of your goosebumps episodes is so can still giving you the back end off of those recordings quarterly i didn't do a lot of work on goosebumps but yes somebody is getting money Um, (laughs) and and i though like uh, the stuff that you did in the 90s and the 80s is SoCan still honoring that? Oh, yeah, if it's getting airplay. Airplay was, and I suppose is in some ways, the way in which you can make money. So if you can get a song on a show, or in my case, I was mostly hired to write music for shows. And so I would get a composer credit when and if that happened. Most of the stuff that I worked on is no longer on the air, which is a drag because it's not generating income. Most of the stuff that I got credit for, there's a lot of stuff I did that I didn't get credit for. And some of that is still making money. But I think that part of what you're looking at doing is working independently from the producers, but having songs presented to them that they might want to use. I've got somebody I'm working with and he works with the sound library kind of execs that work with the supervisors. So you had a really cool in where you were working directly for the show, which is like the gold standard of sync licensing, I guess, right now, is if you can be working specifically for a show. But at World, I'm trying to learn about and wanting to get into as is sound libraries and maybe getting a relationship with a, a sound library. But I've got a fellow that mixed and mastered my album and is currently doing that. And he's had a very successful run for the last 10 years. He's got hundreds, if not thousands of cues out there that have been accepted mm. in little tiny placements all over film, TV and commercials and stuff. And that's the game I want to pursue. So it's, it was kind of cool listening to your story about yeah. how you did it for 20 years. 
Well, I'd love to talk to him. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're at the point where we're officially passing the jam on from Heather Gemmel to Douglas Cameron. Heather, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show on a number of episodes, but I've certainly loved your music, and I know our audience has as well. And I know you are are about to release your record, and we'll certainly do what we can to promote that. All of this has been absolutely fantastic. I thank you both. It's been a great conversation. This will make for a fabulous episode. And Douglas, uh, I think you're a very humble guy. I listen to your music, and I think it's beautiful. Maybe it's because I'm older, too. (laughs) But I really do think you've got a lot of runway left. Wonderful music, and thank you so much for including me in all this, too, Blake. Of course. So great to talk to somebody like Doug. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to talk to him, so it's it's been an honor to be on your show. And thank you so much for uh, chatting with me, Douglas. Oh, me too. I feel the same way. Thank you. I think you've both given our audience a lot to think about. The whole purpose of Pass the Jam is to have musicians talking to musicians, to share knowledge, know-how, experience, and aspirations, which in turn gets passed along to aspiring musicians and artists everywhere. And that's exactly what we wanted to achieve. As I've mentioned, after a few more cycles of Pass the Jam, we want to do something as a culminating event. And I've been in discussion with folks out in Kimberley, B.C. about hosting such an event where we'll bring together all the artists who've been guests on the show for a live performance and perhaps a series of workshops. So we'll keep you abreast of all of that as we move forward. This concludes this week's episode of Pass the Jam, A Man of a Thousand Faces, with my guests Heather Gemmel and Douglas Cameron. The jam has officially been passed to Douglas Cameron, who is now our new artist in residence, and will be playing his songs for all the intros and outros to the show for the remainder of this season and into the next. For what it's worth. How come I gotta go see you in the movies? Don't you love me anymore? We used to go out